Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jan Peterson of Bodega Ray Fernanda de Castilla on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Very nice to have you. Great to be in New York. You are the head and owner of a sherry producer, Bodega in Jerez. Yes. Uh, Well, I'm uh, since 1999, I took over uh, the sherry company, Bodega Ray Fernando de Castilla in Jerez. It's um, a small producer that has always been concentrating on the, on the very high end of uh, sherry and, uh, and brandy. And well, the company goes back well, really several centuries because the, the family that started it is one of the greatest grape growing families in the sherry district. They've been involved with the sherry industry since well, the end of the 17th century. And uh, for many generations, they've been supplying grapes to the sherry industry. And then in the 1960s, they saw that, you know, basically all the money, you know, was made by the people that actually branded the sherries. And they thought, well, let's uh, try and create a brand for, uh, you know, the better part of our production. And also they had a a big idea, which was to uh, sell sherry to the Spanish market. Because at the time, you know, the sherry market developed in two different directions. The uh, export types of sherry were sort of increasingly the semi-sweet, the semi-dry, the mediums, the goldens, the pale creams. And uh, prices were going down, volumes were going up. And uh, this tendency never hit Spain. You know, the Spanish market was always, well... In Spain, people call sherry vino de Jerez, and it's a wine. It's a wine that you you enjoy with food. And the Spanish market was always demanding, you know, the original, traditional styles of wines that are either very dry or very sweet. And the Spanish never understood the uh, blended semi-sweet sherries. And a lot of the brands that are famous in Northern Europe, in North America, are simply not on the market in Spain and not consumed by the Spanish public. So Fernando saw uh, an opportunity to uh, to create products, you know, both in the brandy sector and in the sherry sector that was more aimed at people that still wanted to enjoy very good sherry with their tapas food and with other things. And it really is continuing to use sherry as it was always done. If you go back a few generations uh, over here in, in the United States, uh, Northern Europe, people were drinking sherry with 
starters with soups. It belonged in, in a dining context and not something consumed mid-afternoon and when somebody came around the house. You know, it's, it never took off in Spain. So how did you get there? Because you weren't born in Spain. No, no, I was not. I'm Norwegian and uh, as you know, a lot of people before me in the sherry trade. You know, I came to Spain, you know, initially to uh, study at the university in Barcelona. I finished my studies there and I was hired by one of the largest companies in the business, actually the largest company in the business at the time, Osborne. And I joined them for the international division back in 1983. And I planned to stay with them for a few years and then maybe, you know, do something else. But, uh, you know, it was very exciting times, you know, the... There's a lot of interesting project with Osborne, and one day I woke up and I had spent 16 years with Osborne. And I also saw that this company, fabulous company, but uh, you know, we when I joined, for us, sherry and brandy and port, the traditional products were given less priority and they were moving into a lot of other areas. And I was, of course, part of that as well. But I, I started to sense that there, there, there were opportunities that we were not capitalizing on. And one day I was approached by Fernando and uh, he was reaching retirement age and he wanted, he wanted a partner and uh, somebody to join him. Uh, and uh, so we run the company while he could sort of more or less retire. And I wasn't interested in sort of joining him and building or, or taking this company to a new level, being a minority partner. So together with family and, and uh, two friends, we actually ended up buying 100% of the company. So this was you know late 1999, early 2000. And I set about doing what I thought was necessary to do with the great brand of Sherry and Brandy. And uh, I assessed what we had. We had to hire new people. I hired a new winemaker. I hired a new uh, commercial manager for Spain that came from you know, Gonzalez Bias, another big operator. I hired a new export manager that came from, well, came with me from Osborne. We sort of restored the facilities. We also ended up uh, buying another small sherry house called Jose Bustamante which was located conveniently just across the road from Fernando de Castilla. So we we managed to get, well, more or less double in size in, in sort of space. And it's, it's a very, very beautiful setting. I really think our cellars are among the, the most beautiful in the whole Sherry region. And we started to present our products, you know, some from 2001 onwards, opening new markets. And we had a clear idea that, you know, first of all, we wanted to retain Spain as our main focus. And, you know, we, we wanted to even to uh, sort of develop our presence in Spain and not lose that position, you know, the, on the contrary. I think strong brands, they need to have a strong base uh, where they come from. If not, it's, it's difficult. You know, no, people find out these days. We you know we live in a fishbowl, and if if you sell a brand of sherry that nobody wants to drink in Jerez, you know, the, then you know it's it's like difficult. And in the UK, we focus a lot on the UK. You know, for us, the UK is you know the other home of sherry. You know, most sherry companies in the past they would have an office, well, sellers in Jerez and a sales office in London. And then from London, it will be spread out to the corners of the world. And today, the UK is our biggest market. And the last two years, we've started to focus on the US as well. So we're almost getting there. We're but no national importer for you? No, we've, uh, you know, we talked to people. And it's strange, you know, a few years ago, because I had good contacts in the business from my older 
my other company, we talked to a number of the uh, sort of larger national distributors, and they didn't didn't want to talk to us much. And uh, so we said, well, okay, we'll do it the other way. We'll talk to you know, we'll go to the markets where we want to be, which you know for us would be New York and uh, New Jersey, and you know Boston, Washington, Chicago. Um, I would say Denver as well, and and obviously California, where there is interest in in wine, and we'll sell directly to uh, importers in, in in those states. And I think for the consumers of our products, it's a good thing because they will be able to purchase the products at a lower price since it goes straight from our sellers to an importer in each individual state. And you know, for the time being, at least, there's areas in the United States where it's a little bit too early for our style of sherry, which is, you know, it's not the easiest. <laughs> we make very good products, but uh, you, you need a certain, you need a certain sort of background and uh, understanding of this type of sherry before you can start to enjoy it. So let's talk a little bit about the sherries that you do make. You have two ranges of sherry. Yes, you know, we we early on we had it very clear. You know, I'd say the sherry market will be sort of grouped into four sort of quality levels. One is the sort of the entry level sherry, which is where a lot of the uh, sort of medium and goldens and uh, semi sweet, semi dry wines and a lot of own label sherries, and especially in uh, in northern Europe. And uh, this is an area where we, we we cannot compete and where we didn't want to be. And then you have the sort of the premium area and the uh, upper end, and then you have the extremely expensive ones. We don't do those either. We don't have sherries in in the sort of two hundred euro a bottle price range, but we we have one range at the premium level, which is our classic range, very fine wines, very true to the tradition of Jerez. And you know what do you get when you get to know these wines? It's the type of manzanilla that people expect. A very fresh, fragrant, crisp, delicious, young manzanilla to go with fish and seafood and tapas food. And same thing with the classic fino. It's, it's one of those finos which are you can really use like a white wine. You can, uh, two or three people can enjoy one bottle in a, in a meal and, and using it as a, as, a, as a wine. The same thing with the rest of the, the classic ranges, an Amontillado, a dry Amontillado, a dry Oloroso, there's a Pedro Jimenez. So we can sort of at, I'd say, retail sort of $20, 20 a little bit over $20 a bottle. We have very fine cherries. And then we have the uh, maybe the, the range that has put us on the map when it comes to good cherries, which is the antique range, which are five wines that we have aimed to sort of create the ultimate cherries in, in each and one of those categories. And there's uh, the antique Fino, which is a Fino, which is aged for eight to nine years, which is unusually long. And it's also drawn from the casks in, in its raw and natural state. And we, we don't do any industrial processes with wine. When it leaves the cask, uh, there's no cold stabilization, there's no fining, there's no clarification, there's no blending, there's no sweetening, there's no nothing done to it. The only thing we do is with a paper filter, we take away any sort of larger solids and uh, we re-fortify the wine from 15%, 15.2%, which is the strength in the solida. We bring it up to 17%. 
to avoid any sort of unwanted microbiological activity in the wine and uh, bottle it and it's it's worked out well it it sort of created i think an interest in real fino and finos that are sort of aged further than normal with more flavor with more depth with more complexity and wines that are incredibly interesting and i you know i started this basically because i i personally love those sherries and I have uh, yeah, friends in the trade and, and restaurants and uh, a few customers that are also interested in this. And what's happened in the last years is that the demand for this type of sherry is, is, is increasing. And we see a lot of companies now also coming out with uh, wines like this. And, uh, and also this, um, what we call Enrama or natural uh, finos. You're known for dosing the fino with a bit more alcohol than others might do and why would you do that and what does that mean well the thing is you know i remember i'm old enough to remember that uh, you know in the old days if you were shipping manzanillas or finos around they would very quickly go bad i remember you know when i joined those born in 1983 people were saying that manzanilla would go bad from on the road from san luca to seville which is 50 miles away so, you know, they were notoriously fragile because the filtration techniques were not very good. And the, the phenos that we shipped to the United States from Osborne in the, in the 1980s, they were always fortified to 17, 18, 19% alcohol. And this was done to uh, protect the wine from saying that the yeast could reproduce inside the bottle. The floor yeasts, if they get in contact with the air, and if there's still traces of flora in the wine, they can actually reproduce inside the bottles, and I've seen that. So, you know, in order to avoid that, they were always re-fortified. And then in the old days, all phenols that were exported were of this type. Uh, the thing is, through the late 80s and 90s, all the companies moved away from these heavier phenols and twice-fortified phenols into very, very light phenols and manzanillas. And they can now, with modern filtration techniques, you can filter away any traces of yeast or bacteria. So you can actually sterilize the wine completely with by filtration. So you could ship, you could ship a wine at well, 15% or, or even less and uh, absolutely no problem. So uh, we just wanted to have a wine that was like the sherries uh, made in the past. And, uh, you know, I, I love this wine and I'm, I'm, well, I'm a little bit surprised to see that uh, so many people have actually found out about these wines and showing them. But the reason that you would do it a little bit higher in alcohol is because yours is not filtered. Yes. And, you know, the thing is, if you, if you do unfiltered wines and you don't re-fortify it, the shelf life will be very short, and there is a risk of you know refermentations and and uh, reprodu reproduction of the yeast inside the bottle. So we wanted to create a natural wine, but that could actually travel. You know this ancient way of doing things actually works. So um, it's a way of discovering the um, old, very special sherries, and you can actually also enjoy them not only very shortly after bottling, but you can enjoy it for a longer time. And it's also single Solera. Yes, yes. All the uh, antique wines are single Solera wines, meaning that they come from one batch of barrels. There's a set of criaderas or nurseries that leads up to a Solera. And uh, very often wines are a blend of many different wines. You know, you have an Oloroso, a brand of Oloroso. You might have, you know, 10 different Soleras going into the blend. 
or Finos, you know, some of the big names in Fino will be a mix of a lot of different Finos from different uh, sellers and uh, so on. And these wines are from single soleras. They are unblended, unsweetened, untreated and bottled only once a year and uh, coinciding with the coolest part of the year, which is generally between December and early March, when uh, temperatures in the cellars will be well, say 8 to 10 degrees Celsius, which means that the wines are fairly settled and they're very clear in the, in the casks. So we, we draw a certain amount from the casks. And again, only by taking the wine through a sort of a paper filter to remove any larger solids, the wine is bottled. And on top of it, we've decided a long time ago that we, we wanted you know our wines to be for people that really know and love sherry. So uh, we put them into clear glass so people can actually see, you know, when they see a bottle of antique Fino, they can see this sort of liquid gold color, which shows them that, you know, this is a wine which has been aged much longer than a normal Fino. You can see this, uh, the dark topaz color of an Amontillado. You can see the mahogany color of an, uh, of an Oloroso. You can see the jet black color of a... Uh, of, of the Pedro Jimenez, and you could also see the texture of the wines. You can you can actually turn the bottle around. The Pedro Jimenez is sort of very thick; it's almost like tar, you know. And uh, you see the the Amontillado is is it's it, you can see that it's not been blended with with sweet wines just because of the texture. So um, I think it's been a good thing. The thing is that um, these wines, since they they're very natural, they they will throw a deposit after a certain time so you know the, after two or three years in the bottle you'll see a sediment so we put that on the labels and uh, we were concerned that you know some people might sort of uh, start sending us the goods back or something this wine is bad but i haven't had a single bottle back but about your fino solera one of the things that stood out for me in researching it is that the floor stays on that solera year-round Yes, you know, we, we are located in the capital of the Sherry District, you know, Jerez de la Frontera, which is um, at about 20 miles inland from the Atlantic Ocean, where San Luca de Barameda, the home of Manzanilla, and uh, El Puerto de Santa Maria is located. You know, these coastal towns have a more humid, cooler climate, and uh, Jerez has a drier climate. So, you know, we have to be careful and uh, we have to monitor the yeast very carefully because uh, because it's drier and hotter in the summer. So, uh, first of all, we decided, uh, you know, a long time ago that we would stay in the ancient old cellars. You know, our oldest cellars are from 1794 and uh, what we call the new part is, was built in 1870. And their um, sort of textbook, bodega buildings very thick outer walls high roofs good ventilation floors that are made of uh, something called albero which is a type of sand or or which is uh, compacted and uh, in summer we would water these floors to create a more a better humidity in the cellars and also to reduce temperature because when water evaporates in the cellar the uh, evaporation takes energy from the surroundings that brings down the temperature so uh, uh, what we decided very early on was that we would not do any uh, summer bottlings of Fino or Manzanilla even because we want to preserve the yeast uh, in the best possible condition. So in, in, in summer and also the coldest part of winter when also the yeasts are a little bit uh, more fragile, 
we we will just keep the cellars closed and we move in and water the floors in summer and uh, we we do in general we do bottlings in in autumn and in in spring and from say late june till late september we don't we don't bottle anything and in december january we don't bottle either and what about some of the other bottlings in the antique range what, well, you know, the, the antique range, you know, the bottling, the ideal bottling time would be the coldest time of the year when the, when the wine is naturally clear in the casks. So, you know, with these wines, we do, we, we bottle in, in, in that time. When we don't bottle Fino, we, we actually bottle uh, the Amontillado, the Palo Cortado, the Oloroso, the Pedro Jimenez. And uh, this, this uh, system works well. And uh, it's... Uh, we can we can do this because you know our volumes are not as large as the sort of the people that have to supply the big supermarket chains or whatever you know we we release about well less than 300,000 bottles a year and uh, so we can we 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 can do this but uh, of course it's very difficult if you make 30 million bottles what is the age range of the different soleras that you have for the antique range well you know we were talking about the antique fino uh, which is eight to nine years old, and then uh, the uh, the uh, Amontillado and the Oloroso has an average age of uh, about twenty years, and then we have the the two oldest wines are the Palo Cortado and the Pedro Jimenez, which have an average age of about thirty years. But you know it, it, that's the average. You know these come from ancient soleras, and uh, some of these wines will will actually contain traces of wines that are maybe seventy or eighty years old. And that's the beauty of the Solero system, that you're the fractional blending and every single uh, harvest that that is uh, included in the in the Solero system will actually enrich the final blend. And uh, that's why I think we, we should talk more about this, the fact that Sherry has this unique feature of fractional blending in Solero systems. And, and it's, it's a fantastic thing. I've, I've seen... I've compared uh, vintage sherry and, and solera sherry of similar similar age, and my conclusion is always that the the solera product is superior. And uh, so, I think I think it's it's something which is quite unique to sherry, and I think it's something we should talk more about. Some of those wines that you have in the antique range would thus be possible to be labeled VORS, but you choose not to do that. Uh, why is that? Well, you know, I don't want to get in trouble with my, my friends at the, uh, at the Consejo Reglador, but, uh, you know, we, we, we looked at, we looked at this and, uh, and, um, as I said, you know, the Solera system, uh, effectively means that, uh, wines are a blend of, uh, a lot of vintages and, and many, many bodegas will have wines that are, that are made up of, of uh, a lot of different vintages. So it makes it very difficult to verify outside you know, which wine is 15 years old, 20 years old, 30 years old. And, and so I was against the, the use of the actual years on them because it would be difficult to, to verify. Every single bodega, I can know the average age of my, my solera because I can just calculate, you know, how much I put in and I take out and how much I put in. So if I have, you know, 1,000 liters and I bottle 100 every year, it will be an average 10 years. But it's very difficult from out, for outside sources, outside control mechanisms to, to verify what your competition is doing. And I thought it was unnecessary since a solera, solera means that 
in a wine that is 20 years old, you know, there will be wines that are significantly older, but also wines that are significantly younger. So um, it's also a sort of tricky thing where, you know, to sort of talk to the consumer about, you know, well, how do you sort of uh, calculate this and everything. So I think we and a few of the other smaller producers and also our partners at Kipo Navazos, La Bota. We also decided, you know, to, for the time being, you know, uh, not using these uh, claims. And it hasn't created any, any problems for us. And uh, on the contrary, I think uh, people now think of, you know, the VOS and VRS and the antique range from Fernando Garcia. Sort of, so we managed to create our own little category. If I wanted to better understand the different styles of sherry that you produce and what the flavor differences would be and how they are produced differently across your range, what would you tell me? <laughs> sherry is a very, you know, it's an ancient wine and it's been produced for, well, as we know it today, I'd say practically 500 years. And over the time, there's developed a lot of different uh, sherry, you know, official types of sherry. Everything from manzanilla to manzanilla pasada to palmas, dos palmas, palo cortado, uh, medium, golden, you name it. There's a lot of different names. But actually, sherry can be grouped into three families of wines. The pale dry wines, which are the wines that are aged on the floor, um, the, what we call the biological aging, means that the wine spends practically the, the whole, its whole life in the oak casks under a thick layer of uh, floor yeasts. This is the largest family of wines and uh, is, is produced by taking the original uh, base wine, bringing it up to 15% alcohol, leaving it in oak casks that are filled up about 70% and making sure that there's a certain amount of air circulation into the barrel that keep the yeasts alive. So that, that, that's one type. That's the most difficult wine to make. It, uh, it needs sort of coolish, uh, humid uh, cellars and it, uh, it, it needs uh, close monitoring of the of the floor yeast, and then the second style of wines will be the uh, the uh, what we call the golden cherries or the brown cherries, the the wines that are left uh, unprotected by the yeast and left to oxidate in in the barrels. And uh, this is this is a different process. The type of barrels are the same, five hundred liter casks uh, filled up to about 70% and also allowing a certain amount of air to enter the barrel. And the oxidation uh, transforms a very neutral, pale, healthy base wine into something absolutely completely different. Uh, you know, the oxidation slowly changes the color from, from uh, sort of uh, almost like a greenish white color to a... Uh, um, golden color, amber color, mahogany color, and it goes darker and darker with with time. And and some of these wines actually, if we talk about fino or palo cortado, they spend a certain amount of time under yeast, and then the yeast is removed by filtration, and then the wine is refortified a second time, from fifteen percent to eighteen percent, and then left to oxidate in in the in the barrels in in a solera of amontillado, or if it's palo cortado, palo cortado. And then the third family of sherry would be, as I said, the pale dry wines are the white cherries, Fino Manzanilla, the brown ones, the main ones are Amontillado and Oloroso, and then the very sweet cherries. Main ones would be Moscatel and Pedro Jiménez, especially Pedro Jiménez. And these wines are 
if we talk about Pedro Jimenez, it comes from um, wines that are, uh, well, grapes that are dried in the sun for anything between four and 10 days. Uh, the um, grapes will lose about 50% of their weight. So uh, we calculate that from 100 kilos of grapes, we get 30 liters of must, grape must. And the grape must, by law, must have about 275 grams of uh, residual sugar. The, our base wines for Pedro Jimenez are normally around 300, 300 grams of uh, residual sugar. It's left to ferment for a short period. The, 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 um, the actual alcohol from fermentation is normally between 1 and 2%. So when the actual fermentation starts, we will stall the fermentation by adding alcohol to the wine, up to 15% alcohol, and then move the wine into 500 liters uh, casks and uh, left to oxidate like other sherries. The thing is with Pedro Jimenez and, and also if, if it's Moscatel Passa, it takes a long, long time for the wines to develop uh, you know, flavors because they're so sweet that you know, they, they're very stable. They're, they're, they're difficult to uh, difficult to change so you need a lot of time to make a very good Pedro Jimenez it needs aging for a long time it needs very good casks of very thick uh, wood um, so I talk a, a lot about this when people visit us about some maturity levels with cherry and uh, it's like you know sometimes I compare it to cheese you know a great cheese is the one you get when it's at peak maturity, and this is different from different types of cheeses. But with cherry, I'd say, let's say manzanilla. A manzanilla from a good cellar can be perfectly enjoyable and fantastic when it's only about three years old. With fino, we need a little bit more, especially finos from Jerez, we need a little bit more time. Let's say four years, like our classic fino, it's a very fine wine already. With olorosos that are left to oxidate uh, for um, um, directly when the wine is young, uh, we we can have a very good oloroso when it's about six years old. With amontillado, we need more time because to, to create a good amontillado, you need to keep the wine under floor for quite a long time. So uh, say four to five years on the floor, and then it needs about the same time in the oxidative phase as the oloroso. So you need another six years. So say 10 to 12 years, uh, I don't know any good amontillados, good young amontillados. To me, it's like eating um, a cheese, a camembert cheese, uh, just leaving the uh, the uh, cheesery. It's, it's sort of just a taste of anything. And to me, an uh, immature amontillado is not a very nice drink. When it comes to, as I said, Pedro Jimenez and, and uh, the Moscatel Passa, they, they need a lot, a lot of time, probably about 15 years. Because one of the things I notice when I taste across your antique range is that the, the wines taste a little texturally thicker than their counterparts from other producers, a little bit perhaps more concentrated. And I wonder if that concentration is a result of more age in terms of your selections for release. Well, I think I think our wines are, you know, in, in general, because, you know, you have to think, you know, the, the sherries that people encounter in general will be mostly the, the sherries from the from the very large producers that, that have very good distribution. Our style of sherry is sort of confined to the very, you know, the specialist wine shops and, and uh, 
and a lot of good restaurants. So they're they're difficult to find, and uh, the wines from the from the uh, larger producers made in very large volumes it will normally be released uh, younger. And uh, as we were saying earlier, the the antique sherries are all uh, a lot older than most sherries. So the antique fino is more than twice as old as a as a normal fino. And uh, our Pedro Jimenez antique is thirty years old. And uh, there's a lot of Pedro Jimenez on the market, and and ninety eight percent of it is will be a lot younger. So that's why you know the the concentration. It's not only a concentration with Pedro Jimenez, with the sugar levels and everything. All the wines uh, concentrate, and they 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 have more of everything. Uh, so so that's why they you know when you when you have a glass of antique Amontillado, antique Oloroso, you could see that it sort of it clings to the glass. There's a, there's there's the glass cries, as we say in Spanish. You know that's the texture of the wine. What should we say about how the grapes are sourced for most sherries in Jerez and your sherries in Jerez? Is there a difference in terms of where you're getting your grapes from some of the larger companies? Well, you have to think, you know, sherry was has originally been organized in a three-tier system where there's been literally thousands of wine growers and there's been hundreds of what we call almacenistas, which are private stockholders of wine that in the past tended to be sort of wealthy Wealthy families that uh, that would invest in wine instead of putting the money in the bank, they would they would have private stock holdings of wine because it was a good way to beat inflation. And then there would be the shippers and the exporters that would be the people that would take these wines and blend them into the finished product, label it, and 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 sell it in the export markets. Um, this is this is uh, well has been the system until I'd say. Well, 30, 40 years ago, when there's been more integration, there are companies that have uh, vineyards. There, are, a lot of the companies will have uh, large uh, stocks of wines themselves. So the role of the almacenista is is almost disappeared. But what has not disappeared is the wine growing situation. At the moment, there are, I'd say, 25 relevant cherry producers left that are we call shippers and exporters. And uh, there's 2,800 wine growers, which means that, you know, on average, every sherry company has more than 100 suppliers of grapes. And, uh, you know, some of the larger companies will have, you know, multiples of that. We have a partner in the business, uh, which is um, a family that owns vineyards in Juarez. And uh, we, we, most of the wines that we use, well, all the Palomino that is used by Fernando de Castilla comes from from uh, one source, which is our partner that owns a part of uh, the, the business. And uh, they have 43 hectares in the, in the Pago Balbaina, which is one of the better areas of uh, Albariza soil. And all the winemaking is done by hand. It's uh, pressed in the vineyards by two pneumatic, pneumatic wine presses, which is unusual in Hrith. And the wine is fermented uh, at the same facility in the middle of the vineyards. And also the first year of aging of the wines, uh, what we call the sobre tabla, when the wine is sort of fortified and 60% of 60, 70% of the crop is, is uh, fortified to 15% and then left to age as fino and about 
to SH as an oloroso. So all this takes place in one facility. Um, so we can control, we, we have a clear idea of where our fruit comes from. Uh, the grower has a personal interest in, in getting the best possible product to us because they're, they're a significant partner in the, uh, in the business. So it, for us, it's been a, in a, a very good arrangement. And uh, well, other producers, a lot of them will, will uh, generally use base wines that come from cooperatives or, or you know, the sort of more standard sources. Uh, but uh, if you want to make a very high quality product, you have to try and, and, uh, and add quality at all the different levels uh, in the production process. And, and of course, you have to start with the vineyard. And I think there's too little talk about the vineyards in Hreth uh, at the moment. Uh, we, we always talk, well, most people talk too much about the cellars, the soleras, the, uh, all these things. And, and uh, we have to go back because I still remember 30 years ago, there was much, much more talk about the vineyards, the terroir. And in actually good sherry has an expression of terroir as well as other good wines in the world. And, and wines coming from prime albariza soil, Albariza, it's a Spanish word, and I think it needs explanation for most people, but it, it, it really comes from from uh, vineyards that are located on, on limestone, uh, a very deep, chalky uh, soil, which is almost white as uh, snow, and has a good porosity, so it retains humidity. From you know, in Jerez, it rains quite a lot in winter, but it doesn't rain at all in summer. So uh, this uh, capacity of the of the Alvarita to retain humidity makes for much better wines than uh, the ones that are planted on sandy soil or or, or on the um, clay soils that we call barros. You've collaborated at times with the project known as Equipo Navazos, a small release project of. Yes, yes. So, no, this is. Uh, a uh, project created by two very good friends of mine, you know, Jesus Barquin and Eduardo Ojeda. And, you know, I'm proud and uh, happy to be part of that since the very beginning. And uh, it, it really started with Jesus and Eduardo coming to Jerez and, and uh, you know, looking through the cellars. And uh, and uh, they, they quickly realized that, uh, you know, in very old soleras, like the ones that, uh, that uh, we find at Fernando de Castilla, you know, barrels tend to develop a little bit differently. Uh, so if you taste, you know, if you have 100 barrels in a Solera, if you taste all 100 barrels, you know, suddenly you will have a cask which is, which is you know, just better than the others. And uh, the idea to separate those, select those casks and, uh, and bottle that separately was, uh, was a very good idea. And uh, they've been primarily working in Jerez with us and uh, with Valdespino, another very good producer. And uh, they've been very good at, at selecting the wines and finding the right audience for the for the wine. So uh, in Spain, you find those wines in, in the very best outlets and uh, same thing in, uh, in the UK, in the US and uh, many other places. I, I think it's a very good, a very good concept, very good concept. And um, it's also you know, for us, it it's it's helped us to you know be able to get sherry into areas that or or the, you know the very top end of the the wine market where sherry had a you know difficult entry, 
the equipo navajos uh, bottlings uh, have really gained access in in the sort of fine wine uh, area of the wine market and uh, and also when people turn the bottle around and they see who's made it uh, it's it's also it's been good for us because we've had a lot of interest from you know journalists from the trade everybody say well if this very fine bottling from Equipo Navarros is bottled by Fernando Castilla, well, Fernando Castilla must be making some pretty good stuff. So uh, it's, uh, I think it's been a very mutually beneficial uh, relationship and uh, and uh, it's continuing. And I think it's, it's very good for the industry as, as such. And you're known also for brandies, aside from the wine. Yes, very much so. And uh, this is my, my second, well, passion and i'm not saying second because it's l- less important i think i think some of the finest brandies in the world are found in Jerez. uh the brandy uh, history in in Jerez is uh, as old as in the cognac industry it started about 250 years ago when uh, dutch merchants uh, discovered that um, wine distillates uh, aged in oak casks for a long time and, and sort of brought down to a drinking strength of about 40% was actually a very, very pleasant drink. And the, the, the drink was called Brandewin, which in Dutch, you know, it's difficult uh, to pronounce in, in English. So it was, you know, this Dutch word was transformed into English brandy. And uh, the Dutch started it in cognac and they also started it in, in Jerez. And uh, so there's been a a strong brand industry in in Jerez uh, for a very long time, and it's today as important as the sherry industry. People, many people don't realize it because a lot of the brandy stays in Spain, whereas you know exports of sherry is, is uh, the export sherry is much higher. But uh, but for brandy, uh, about seventy percent of the brandy produced stays in Spain. But still, it's uh, an industry that turns out about sixty million bottles a year. And if you look at the top categories, you know the reservas and grand reservas. There are there are some fantastic uh, specimens. And uh, I was lucky enough to take over the company with uh, with uh, some fabulous brandies in in the cellars, but also most importantly, you know the philosophy of how this brandy was made, because uh, it's it's not made like other brandies, not even in the region. Uh, first of all. All the distillates that we use are pot still alambic distillates from young, uh, aromatic, unsulfured white wines that are distilled in in uh, small pot stills of twenty to twenty five hectoliters, with live log fire underneath. So we're actually using technology that goes back centuries. Um, these wine distillates that uh, we obtain they generally come out at sixty two to sixty five percent alcohol. They're incredibly fragrant, and uh, and of course, when you, when you uh, make wine distillates at a very low uh, alcoholic strength, you need perfect wines. So we we uh, carefully select the wines that are distilled. Uh, we get a very fruity, very fragrant, very aromatic wine distillate that we then season in new American oak casks for a certain period or for the. For the uh, Grand Reserva brandies, we use limousine French oak casks. Um, and uh, after a period in new casks, the the uh, brandies are brought out down to 42% alcohol and introduced into old cherry casks. And then aged for 
anything between five and up to over 40 years in, in sherry casks. And I think this, these three things, the, the use of the exclusively the, the alambic, what we call Olandas, or the alambic potstill pot destillates, the period in new oak, and the aging of the brandies in soleras at drinking strength, as opposed to at full strength, like most producers do, uh, makes for a very, very, uh, very natural brandy. We also, we don't use any sugar, we don't use any color. So basically what you get is very fine wine distillates, aged in very good casks, in very good cellars, the adequate amount of time. And returning again to sort of the, the idea of maturity. Uh, if, if you make grape distillates, grape uh, brandy, um, it needs also, like sherry, it needs a certain maturity. And I think for, for brandy, the the youngest uh, age you can release a brandy to be sort of pleasant to drink for me is about six years. So that's why uh, in the four categories of brandy produced in the area, we only produce brandies in the top two categories, the Reserva and the Grand Reserva. So it's like in cognac equivalent, we will, we're only doing VSOP and XO qualities. We're not making anything below that. Simply because you know the type of distillates that we use are they're uh, they're very special, they're costly, they're scarce, and uh, and the process takes a long time. But again, we have a product which is clearly differentiated. Some people, again, you know, like our Amontillados and Palo Cortados, they're uncompromisingly dry. They're different. They're they're challenging to the uh, uninitiated. But people that understand uh, fine brandies, they 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 immediately see that this is this is a, a fantastic product and uh, we also done some some very fine bottlings with uh, Kiponathos and you make a bit of vinegar yeah when i took over we we had a solera of about 40 barrels of sherry vinegar and uh, again you know sherry vinegar is is an industry and there's a, there's a lot of sherry vinegar made in in the area it's uh, well, something like 10 million bottles produced of sherry vinegar. So it's, it's also protected by a denomination of origin. There's very few vinegars in the world with that uh, consideration. But uh, sherry vinegar initially was an accident. You know, it was a byproduct of the sherry industry. And uh, sometimes the pheno casks would lose their floor. And uh, um, the, the, when, when, the wine, when the wine at 15% alcohol is unprotected by by the floor, uh, air can get to the wine, and any wine has a certain amount of acetic bacteria. And uh, sometimes, uh, especially coinciding with, with high temperatures, the acetic bacteria would start to transform the, the uh, alcohol into acetic acid, which is vinegar. And, uh, and then this process would start, and then you would have to take that barrel out of the fino solera and put it into a solera vinegar. Well, that's what we call vino picado, or broken wine. So uh, the the origin of sherry vinegar was vino picado, you know, broken wines that were then left aside to to develop into vinegar. And what people found out is that these vinegars that are, you know, the wines that are turned into vinegar just in 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 barrels and just letting time transform the the, the alcohol into acetic acid. This is a very slow process in a, in a barrel. 
uh, well, we generally calculate that it takes one year for one percent of alcohol to turn into acetic acid. So if you the vino picado that you're starting with is twelve thirteen percent alcohol, well, that's the twelve thirteen years that you need for the process to to be completed. So I, I took over a solera of forty barrels of vinegar made this way, uh, just a slow slowly turning the uh, the wine into vinegar in in barrels just leaving them aside in a separate cellar and uh, uh, my predecessor released the vinegar and we've continued to make this vinegar but there's also there's also um, you know the demand has outstripped the possible supply of this type of vinegar so today genuine uh, vinegar made in you know accidental vinegars are very scarce also because winemaking techniques have improved so there's much less vino picado than there used to be so today most vinegar is, is actually made from palomino base wines that are blended with vinegar what you call madre so mother the vinegar mother so you blend young wine with vinegar and then you you uh, put the wine into tanks where you blow oxygen through the wine, so you can speed up the process. You know what takes twelve years in a, in a solera, you can do it in twelve days, and then after that you can take these vinegars and then age them for a period in in oak casks to give them a little bit of that uh, sort of um, sherry uh, or, or oak uh, character. And uh, at at the moment we're we're actually making uh, vinegar in both categories. We're still continue to use the ancient solera of of as a traditional sherry vinegar but we only release about three barrels a year of that uh, this is what we call la bodega and uh, and the other traditional sherry vinegars we make um, slightly larger volumes but uh, that that's sort of more industrial type of vinegar but there, there's a strong demand for sherry vinegar especially in france and it's also growing in the united states and we actually sell our we have an importer here in New York who sells our vinegars as well, and it, it's there's a lot of interest. It, it has to do with uh, the general interest in in food and uh, and everything. And sherry vinegar is, without any question, it's the finest dry vinegar in the world, and it's fantastic with salad dressings, with uh, gazpachos, with uh, tomatoes, with seafood, with clams, with uh, all sort of things. So, so it's a, it's a, an incredible ingredient. Speaking about the general interest in food, and to swing back to the wines for a moment, do you find sherry pairing mostly with traditional Spanish food, or do you find it flexible with a number of different cuisines, or what has worked for you when you've tried to pair mm. your own sherry with food? Well, actually, you know, when this is one of my favorite topics, and uh, and uh, you know, I had a group from the Wine and Spirit Education Trust visiting last week, and you know, we were talking two hours in the cellars about uh, sherry and and sherry and food because you know I always talk about the two together, and uh, one of the guys told me, Jan, you know, I I've never heard somebody talk so much about food in a in a wine cellar before, and you know, it really it helps us to understand, you know, what these products are for. And uh, this is very much true with the type of sherry that we make. You know, they, they are all intended to be vinos de Jerez, you know, sherry wines. There are, there are wines that are, has to be enjoyed with food. And uh, the uh, idea of, of sherry only being um, something that you should pair with spanish food i think this notion we have to we have to uh, 
we have to uh, develop further. And I think Sherry offers some incredible pairings with Japanese food. Things like sushi and sashimi is is delicious with the younger finos and the and the manzanillas. With things like you know the the uh, soups and the more things where we have uh, sauces and uh, you know sweet soy sauces, um, uh, miso, this type of thing, these flavors uh, and amontillados can be absolutely incredible. Uh, with meat dishes. <coughs> Or duck or something like that. Also in the in the Japanese or Chinese uh, kitchen, uh, olorosos can be incredible. So there's there's a lot of exciting uh, pairings with with uh, Asian food. I would say I would single out Japanese and and uh, Chinese, you know, high end Chinese food, but also you know moving from the obvious Spanish, the other fantastic combination. But there's also other kitchens. And I'd like, you know, because I'm Norwegian, but, uh, you know, the Nordic food is starting to get uh, a certain, um, uh, there's certain interest in, in that type of food as well, which is talking very much about the raw material, you know, fantastic food, uh, seafood, uh, fish, things from the forest, you know, like mushrooms and, and uh, you know, vegetables and, and things like that. And there's some stunning combinations there as well. I think of, you know, things like the antique fino with uh, with hot smoked, you know, sort of fatty fish like mackerel or eel or, or trout or salmon. Um, the, the field forest mushrooms with amontillado, you know, sort of any dish, you know, sort of game with mushrooms, sort of wintry uh, dishes like that with amontillados and olorosos can be stunning. Not Not only, you know, possible combination but it's actually incredible combination offering something a total experience which which sometimes is superior to what people the wines that people normally do so i i would challenge people to try sherry more with with that type of food you know when you when you have foods that are a little bit you know it's maybe difficult to pair with with food uh, sherry should be on your radar say well you know what do i serve with artichokes you know uh difficult with whites difficult with reds you know why why let's have a look at sherry and sometimes sherry can be the answer uh we can it can actually handle things that are sometimes difficult for other wines and it's also you know in general when you have many different flavors you know think of the spanish tapas way of eating you know Fino or, or Manzanilla is, is a great tapas wine because you can serve it with, you know, fish-based tapas, with, veg, you know, salads, things that you have a lot of vinegar. Uh, sherry is a very low uh, wine with very low acidity, so it matches uh, dishes with vinegar or, or lemon dressings uh, very well. It can also handle, you can have fino with your albondigas, your meatballs, your chorizo, you, you know, meaty things as well. And it, you know, it goes perfectly. And, and it's difficult to find another wine that, that can go so well with such a big variety of, uh, of uh, different things on the, on the table. You've followed the export markets for several years for Sherry. Uh, yes. Have you seen the consumer in the different markets change over that period? Do we see someone else drinking Sherry today than we would have seen, say, 10 years ago? I always talk about this because, you know, I, I see that, you know, we, we've we managed to get, you know, the, 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 the wine elite, you know, the, the, the most influential journalist, wine journalist in the world, the most 
influential sommeliers at the very best restaurants in the world, the uh, the masters of wine. You know, I, I very, very seldom, if ever, come across somebody who's really, really into wine that, that is not also a lover of sherry. So at the very top end of the market, you know, we we've managed to conquer and you know the the sort of the lower end cherries have managed to create a big market at the very bottom end of the market so uh, you know the people that drink inexpensive uh, supermarket owned labels in holland or britain they don't know where they what they're drinking they don't know that it's wine they don't know it where it comes from they if you ask them where they where they think it comes from they probably say somewhere in southern england and uh, and what the challenge for us now is to get to the type of consumer which are uh, young people that are interested in wine they're interested in food they're they're they want to learn more so these are people that are not necessarily sort of wine professionals but they they take their wine serious and they they want to learn more they want to be more interested they want to know what they're drinking where it comes from who's the producer and all this and um, i think that's where the volume can come from in in the coming years that when, when we get you know that type of consumer that you know thinks about what he's drinking is not just buying any bottle uh, from the off license to have with his steak and potatoes but he, he's actually thinking about what he's eating and and what he, you know what he wants to drink with it so uh i we, we see a growing recruitment to that sector but i must say you know there there's there are markets that are more receptive and and markets that are more difficult in terms of geographically, I, th- I see uh, progress in in uh, in Spain itself. I see progress in uh, in uh, the UK a lot, especially in the London area. I see progress here in the United States, but but primarily in sort of on the East Coast and and in California. Um, there are interest in Japan. You know, there's a there's a growing market for sherry in Japan. And uncertain, you know, sort of embryonic uh, tendencies in in places like you know Scandinavia, Germany, Holland, um, and South America. Strangely enough, we we we're doing very well in in especially in Brazil with cherry, and uh, people don't. Well, my competitors are not paying much attention to Brazil because there's not a lot of uh, sherry consumed in Brazil, but there's a, a fantastic. Uh, uh, moment in in Brazil, uh, the Brazilian Sommelier Association is the second biggest in the world after France. So there's something like seven thousand um, sommeliers in the country. There are fabulous restaurants with uh, very good uh, wine lists, and uh, and cherry is also entering uh, sort of the, the the market there. And the same thing in Mexico. Mexico is a fantastic food country, very limited wine consumption, but there's you know, growing a uh, new generation of uh, people that have maybe studied abroad, they, they've traveled, they, they learned about wine. So the wine consumed in Mexico is, is consumed by a certain portion of the, of the, uh, the consumers. But it's, it's an interest. And we, we also see growth in, in that type of market. So uh, there's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of interest and even China, you know, we do things in, in China and it's they're very receptive to, uh, to our products as well in places like Shanghai, Hong Kong, Russia. We do very, very well in Russia as well. So I, I think, I think, uh, you know, if we work at it and I, I tell my, my friends in the trade that, you know, we, you know, if, 
because I've been out selling before coming to see you today. I've been out out and about in New York and uh, seeing customers. And when you talk to them and you show them wines and and uh, and talk to them about you know how to use the products, they're they're interested. It's actually something which is not that difficult to sell. I think. Jan Peterson of Bodega Fernando de Castilla. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that P O D.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.